From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As Republicans attempt to enact a raft of voter suppression laws across the U.S., will threats against election workers and officials become the norm, too? We speak to reporter Sonam Vashi. If we can't protect our election workers from threats and particularly like criminal actions from getting hurt, that's really serious for, for how our democracy functions. And a new expose reveals how some of the largest and supposedly independent Western news organizations, the BBC and Reuters, participated in a far-reaching propaganda effort funded by the British government aimed at weakening Russia. We speak to best-selling author Max Blumenthal about the real Russiagate. Bellingcat's personnel were sent in to train pro-NATO media. They're actually behind the scenes being sponsored by the British Foreign Office to meddle in other countries' political affairs. All that and much more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, today's show about the truly extraordinary times that we're living in will focus on the ways that the twin veils of process and propaganda are being used by lawmakers, law enforcement, and corporate media to deny rights that are supposedly guaranteed to citizens in the U.S. Constitution. The theater of process and propaganda alters our relationship to reality, allowing the state to engage in brutality and mass incarceration here at home and an imperialist terror and oppression of people around the world. Now, there are so many issues of process tied up as the country's $1.9 trillion COVID relief legislation is on the line in the U.S. Senate. As the U.S. is facing an unprecedented health crisis and economic depression, with more than a half million dead and more than a million people still making fresh claims for unemployment each week, Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin thought it would be a neat trick to delay passage of the bill and relief to Americans by forcing the Senate clerks to take 10 hours to read the 628-page measure into the record, starting Thursday into the wee hours of this morning on Friday. Vice President Kamala Harris had to break a tie vote in the Senate for the bill to even be considered. And remember that last week, it was not a law, but a process formality that allowed an unelected Senate parliamentarian to rule that a raise in the minimum wage to $15 an hour could not be included in this package under the process of budget reconciliation. Though tens of millions of Americans have lost loved ones, as well as jobs, businesses, and homes, the far right represented by Senator John Cornyn of Texas and networks like Fox or Newsmax are able to engage in anti-worker propaganda, referring to this COVID-19 relief bill as quote-unquote extortion, an extortion payment to teachers to get them back into the classroom. So if you have not noticed, teachers, or more precisely teachers' unions, have become a convenient scapegoat of the far right, blamed for the fact that public schools have not been able to fully reopen during a pandemic, 
a pandemic that corporations and lawmakers like Cornyn did not prepare for. Just like Cornyn and his corporate cronies in Texas refused to invest in weatherizing their energy plants. And now Texans must deal with the aftermath of a winter storm, dozens of deaths, $20 billion in damage, and the real extortion is in his state. Monthly electricity bills up to $16,000 as politicians like Cornyn engage in the perfectly legal process of putting profits before people. Before the 10-hour reading of the legislation, Senator Bernie Sanders spoke out about the realities of workers like waiters and waitresses who earn the tip wage of $2.12 an hour. More than 60% of sub-minimum wage earners could not get unemployment benefits because the state and federal government denied them benefits for not making enough earned income. You all got that? So we're talking about the need, and I certainly agree with that, to expand and extend unemployment benefits. But you got a whole lot of workers who are earning starvation wages who are not going to be eligible for unemployment. The United Republican opposition to this popular COVID relief bill in the Senate seems to have finally convinced even centrist Democrats that they will need to end the Senate's so-called filibuster rule, a rule implemented really only recently by Republicans like Mitch McConnell, which requires 60 votes to pass any legislation rather than a simple majority. Even Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota told MSNBC on Thursday night that the filibuster must be scrapped if Democrats have any hope of passing new proposed laws on voting rights, police accountability, or immigration reform. In addition to wrangling over COVID relief, tensions between the two parties remain high on Capitol Hill, as investigations into the January 6th attack begin to explore the involvement of Republican lawmakers who communicated with rioters, and Politico reported on Thursday that a former Trump State Department aide, Federico Klein, was arrested by the FBI on charges related to storming of the Capitol. Politico said that Klein's arrest marked the first known instance of a Trump appointee facing criminal prosecution in connection with the attempt to block Congress from certifying President Joe Biden's victory. The Senate also heard testimony this week from the head of the D.C. National Guard, General William Walker, about the delay by Trump's Department of Defense in okaying deployment of the Guard as the Capitol was being attacked. At 1.49 p.m., I received a frantic call from then-Chief of United States Capitol Police Stephen Sun where he informed me that the security perimeter of the United States Capitol had been breached by hostile rioters. Chief Sun, his voice cracking with emotion, indicated that there was a dire emergency at the Capitol, and he requested the immediate assistance of as many available National Guardsmen that I could muster. Immediately after that 149 call, I alerted the U.S. Army senior leadership of the request. The approval for Chief Sun's request would eventually come from the Acting Secretary of Defense and be relayed to me by Army senior leaders at 5.08 p.m., about three hours and 19 minutes later. I had already had guardsmen on buses at the armory ready to move to the Capitol. You, you were on the, June, uh, the January 6th phone call at 2.30 that we heard in from our previous hearing uh, where the uh, Chief of Capitol Police was making an urgent uh, appeal uh, for help 
Uh, and uh, we heard that the D.C. Metro Police Chief said it was uh, a tepid response. He was shocked by it. What happened on that call? What was your recollection of uh, the call and were the assessment of the two individuals I mentioned? Was that your assessment as well? Yes, sir. So that, that call came in. It was uh, we actually helped facilitate it. The, um, the deputy mayor from the District of Columbia and Dr. Rodriguez, Chief Conte, uh, Chief Son later joined the conversation and we dialed in uh, the senior leadership of the U.S. Army. And at that time, Chief Conte and Chief Son passionately pleaded for District of Columbia National Guard to get to the Capitol with all deliberate speed. Um, so the Army senior leaders did not think that it looked good, it would be a good optic. They further stated that it could for, it could incite the uh, the crowd. Uh, were you frustrated on that call as well? Y yes, I was. Uh, Senator Globachaw, I was, I was frustrated. I, mm -hmm. I, I was just as stunned as uh, everybody else on the call. This week, the Capitol Hill police also requested for the National Guard to remain at the Capitol for another 60 days. Their deployment was scheduled to end on March 12th. Away from D.C., Republicans in state houses have introduced at least 253 proposed laws that restrict voting access, according to the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. And these new efforts at suppression are occurring as the threats of violence to election workers in places like Georgia have gone unpunished. An article published this week by ProPublica was titled, After a Wave of Violent Threats Against Election Workers, Georgia Sees Few Arrests. And the article says, quote, for nearly a year, election administrators across the country weathered the pandemic while facing attacks and threats, leading many officials to resign or retire. In Georgia, little is done to prevent it from happening again. And here to tell us more is the author of the article, Atlanta-based journalist Sunam Vashi. Welcome to On the Ground, Sunam. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I think like many people around the country, I learned about the threatening atmosphere and threats against even state officials in Georgia before the election. Uh, you had a state election official, Gabriel Sterling, you know, make that really passionate pronouncement against the type of rhetoric and the type of false allegations being made by not only President Trump, but many of the people around him that, you know, that the election was being stolen. And he said famously, somebody's going to get hurt, somebody's going to get shot, somebody's going to get killed. And so we knew on that level, but your article really deals with a lot of what the just election workers in at precincts and volunteers were facing. So you know, based on your reporting, are these types of threats unprecedented? You know, but this story really focused on Georgia, but the election workers and, and experts that I talked to, the kinds of threats that we were seeing in Georgia was really, it was really the case for election workers across the country. I don't think, you know, all, all the experts and election workers I spoke with said that they had never seen anything like this past year, just in terms of the types and amounts of, of different types of misinformation, particularly that was happening. There was one situation, 
I remember Trump actually pointing to a particular woman. It was a black woman working, counting the votes and saying that, you know, they had put some votes under the table. And he like called this woman out by name on national, international television. And I thought to myself at the time, this is really crazy. And so when I read your article about a man driving 500 miles from Ohio to Georgia, because he saw something on the live stream that he interpreted one way as being some type of fraud and followed the election workers, I thought, well, this is really, this is really dangerous. We have been referencing the era of reconstruction to discuss the current moment. But before the Civil War, when Lincoln won the presidential election in 1860, there was not really a peaceful transfer of power per se, because so many Confederate states succeeded from the Union. And I'm just wondering if any comparisons are made by the people you spoke to for the article or any of the workers. Are any people making those kind of comparisons in history? Or, you know, what do you think about those comparisons? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting context to think about this in. You know, you know, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, I was speaking with an expert from the Brennan Center for Justice about just the importance of protecting election workers. And, you know, as you're putting it, this, how our election workers and officials play into peaceful uh, transfers of power. And, you know, he was making the point that if we can't protect our election workers from threats that, and, and particularly like criminal uh, actions like intimidation or, you know, from getting hurt, you know, that, that's really serious for, for how our democracy functions. So finally, what kind of challenges does Georgia face, and I, I guess other states also, in combating these new threats in, in this era we're in right now where, you know, people right now are debating what kind of aid that can be given to states and lo- localities? You know, are there the resources to amp up protection for election workers? What we found is that in Georgia, there's no one centralized or comprehensive way to track all of them. And so now, you know, everyone's kind of turning into this, this question of, well, is this is this last election cycle an aberration? Is it an outlier? Or is this kind of what we should be expecting uh, in the years ahead? In terms of resources, right now in uh, the Georgia legislature, there are bills that are advancing that would restrict absentee voting, early voting, and automatic voting registration. But, you know, again, we haven't seen anything that deals directly with protecting election workers. Even when expert pointed to a bill introduced by Senators Bob Menendez and Cory Booker that last year proposed stronger protections for federal judges. Okay. Well, I certainly know that the, the judge in New Jersey, uh, whose son was killed, after she was targeted, the legislation stems from that horrific murder. She's actually had to have her own security with her. And it's really chilling to think that, you know, we might need to have security for election workers. But we may have to look at that as a country. I don't know. But I'm going to have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Sonam Vashi. She's an Atlanta-based journalist whose article was published this week in ProPublica. After a wave of violent threats against election workers, Georgia sees few arrests. Thank you, Sonam. Thanks so much.
Activists took advantage this week of D.C.'s break in cold weather to rally in three separate actions. Chantal James has more on the fight against gentrification and overdevelopment. In struggles on the local level here in D.C., Say McMillan Park and Brooklyn Manor Coalition organized a virtual protest at Ward 5 Councilmember Kenyon McDuffie's home. The people are crying out was an action to call attention to McDuffie's inaction as black and brown residents are displaced by gentrification and face imminent health threats. A coalition on the ground at the council member's home to make their concerns known joined almost 100 people in attendance virtually. Organizer Maurice Cook was one of those who led the call to the council member. We have had a history of being hurt in the city, and currently we are hurting black and brown families by making this city unaffordable for us to eat, unaffordable for us to have cleaning supplies, unaffordable for us to have housing. The action addressed the continuing need to preserve Brooklyn Manor as affordable housing and to save McMillan Park from developers. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. On Thursday, a coalition of organizations rallied at the Maryland State Capitol in Annapolis in support of police reform legislation, including an end to qualified immunity. And the week started with the Black Alliance for Peace and other groups rallying outside the Haitian embassy in Northwest D.C. to support the people of Haiti in their quest for democracy and to oppose the Biden administration's support of dictator Jovenel Moise. Erica of the Black Alliance for Peace appealed to those of us living in the United States to broaden our understanding of the meaning of Black Lives Matter. The people of Haiti are fighting for power, for the ability to determine their own destiny. Stand with us and fight for the freedom and for a new reality in Haiti and the world. No compromise, no retreat. No compromise, no retreat. No compromise, no retreat. No compromise, no retreat. Thank you. And finally, in culture and media, attorneys for jailed political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal announced this week that he has tested positive for coronavirus and demanded that Mumia, who is already suffering from poor medical care while incarcerated, be released from the Pennsylvania prison where he is being held. Also this week, the nomination of Center for American Progress President Neera Tandon to head the Office of Management and Budget in the Biden administration was sunk by her long history of nasty personal tweets against progressives and Republicans and by her cozy relationship with corporations and corrupt foreign leaders. And finally, reggae fans are mourning the passing of Bunny Whaler, co-founder and last living member of The Whalers, which collaborated with Bob Marley on many hits in Marley's rise to megastardom. Bunny Whaler was 73 years old. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Across the sea There's a land 
was Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, listeners to the show know that we air many segments calling out corporate media for its bias favoring the corporatocracy and politicians that show for it, for big lies like Russiagate, for the factory production of news that normalizes inequality at home and imperialism abroad. So with that in mind, I just had to bring to you for this extended segment on culture media information about a new explosive expose that the corporate media is ignoring. And I think they're ignoring it because it exposes them. So a new article by Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, cites newly leaked documents revealing how the vaunted BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and the news service Reuters participated in a massive UK government anti-Russia propaganda operation. So here to tell us more is Max Blumenthal. Welcome back to the show, Max. Good to be back. Well, first I have to say, having worked in corporate media with some people who you see given beats to cover, like the State Department, spy agencies, the Pentagon, it's always been obvious based on what they write or what they say that they share a U.S. imperialist bias. They hate Russia or Iran or Venezuela. But to see that these UK news outlets actually had a contract to be involved in that kind of coverage was really shocking to me. So tell us how it worked. Yeah, and this is not just kind of exposing corporate media to be what we know them as, you know, the consent manufacturing machine or the narrative managers, but it exposes the largest media organization in the world, Reuters, and the BBC, which is a, considered a public broadcaster in the UK and very trusted voice in the US and Canada and elsewhere in the West, as essentially part of the US-UK intelligence apparatus participating in a campaign of information warfare that aims to destabilize Russia in its near abroad and internally and ultimately provoke regime change. Now, I learned about this program, and I've been learning about it through a series of leaks that have been emerging through a supposed hacktivist collective that calls itself anonymous, like so many other hacktivist collectives. I don't know the provenance of the leaks. They could be, they could have been obtained through hacking or from an insider, but they are mostly documents 
from the British Foreign Office, which is the UK's version of the State Department. And they relate to a semi-secret program within the Foreign Office called the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Program. And we've been reporting on them at thegrayzone.com since they've been filtering out in late 2018. And this latest batch of documents, there are hundreds of them, and they show programs to basically infiltrate media in and around Russia to target the Russian-speaking population in the Baltic areas, the Baltic region, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and to affect an attitudinal change, as these documents state, to make people turn against Russia and support NATO. And so the British Foreign Office would put out these solicitations where they'd say, we're looking to do this capacity building program where we train Russian journalists and identify what we need to do on the ground to get people engaged in pro-NATO media. We need to identify which independent outlets and other outlets we can work with and pay covertly, which YouTube influencers we want to support. And then the bids would come in, and the bids came in through the BBC and Reuters. Wow. And the bids were like, we have long record of working with you, the foreign office, in these programs that you've funded, and we propose to take these Russian journalists to London and take them on tours, and then we'll establish an influence network inside Russia. We've done this before. Reuters said they boast a 400 journalists already inside Russia. And then beyond Reuters and the BBC, there are all these cutout firms that say they specialize in strategic communications, which is code for propaganda. Hmm. And they're contracting with the British state to go in and basically pay independent media outlets, including um, some that are active in the U.S., to carry out destabilization activities and infiltration in various areas around Europe and inside Russia. So this is basically everything we hear about Russia doing from our corporate media and from Congress and Hillary Clinton and the Democrats that during the Trump era of Russia was basically colluding with the president and infiltrating our society. There were spies everywhere and foreign agents working within RT to destroy our democracy. A lot of that was was just hype. It was fear-mongering. But here we have, and it's been exposed as such, but here we have just the clear, hard receipts on a program that is probably only the tip of the iceberg that shows that the UK, as America's frontline ally in Europe, is doing everything that we accuse Russia of and more. Wow. So some of these independent... Uh, operations you're talking about. Are you referring to Bellingcat? That would absolutely be the the key independent media outlet that is actually being cultivated, backed, weaponized by U.S. and U.K. intelligence. Right. And, you know, we have, for example, reported on the last batch of documents that were leaked, and those were involving U.S. Uh, kind of PR outlets, PR firms, operating this massive propaganda campaign in relationship to Syria. But tell people a little bit about Bell and Cat. We don't have a lot of time and I don't want to spend too much of our precious time on them. But just give people an idea of what Bell and Cat is, because a lot of people really don't know. 
Well, I mean, if you if you're interested in this issue and you followed it even on a cursory level, you probably do know what Bellingcat is because they're just in your face. Like NPR Fresh Air with Terry Gross just did a fawning profile of Bellingcat's founder, Elliot Higgins, as this digital sleuth who's solved Syrian chemical attacks and solved all these intriguing poisonings of Russian dissidents, always pointing the finger at Putin or whatever the designated bad guy is. And... Time Magazine has a profile out about Bellingcat right now. There are all these puff pieces. Their founder, Higgins, is on book tour, and he presents himself and his outlet as just a plucky group of independent journalists who are fighting against these powerful forces with very little resources. But the reality is that they've been substantially funded by a literal CIA cutout in the National Endowment for Democracy, which is basically the regime change arm of the U.S. government. They pay media and civil society in countries where the U.S. seeks regime change. But through these documents, we've learned a lot more about Bellingcat's relationship with the British deep state mm-hmm. and the British Foreign Office. And I should mention that the Foreign Office, the structure is a little different in the U.K. than here. The Foreign Office presides over the GCHQ, which is Britain's overall intelligence service, and the MI6 is the foreign intelligence arm. Mm-hmm. And so one of these documents was a bid for a British Foreign Office contract from the Zinc Network. It's one of these contractors that I mentioned, or, or intelligence cutouts. And they first announced that they were uh, they had arranged an open information partnership between Bellingcat and several other groups, most of which are intelligence contractors backed by the British state. And the, in a separate document which I found just fascinating and disturbing, the Zinc Network boasted about being able to send Bellingcat into the North Macedonian elections in 2019 in in an emergency to support the pro-NATO candidate because those elections were going to determine whether North Macedonia would ultimately join NATO and the EU or take a pro-Russian direction. And Bellingcat's personnel were sent in to train pro-NATO media. So what, hmm. what, what does this mean? It means that they're not just producing journalism, they're not just doing what they call open source journalism where they analyze Google Earth for clues on chemical attacks. They're actually behind the scenes being sponsored by the British Foreign Office to meddle in other countries' political affairs. Now imagine if you or I were contacted by the Chinese foreign ministry and they said we want you to go to california because there's a pro china candidate there and we want you to train uh, local media to support that candidate and that was publicized we would be prosecuted we would be sent to jail it would be on the front page of the new york times it would be a national scandal mm-hmm. and uh yet bellingcat's doing this in the open well this is not it, it wasn't in the open until i exposed it but this is what bellingcat is and they're being celebrated by virtually every mainstream outlet as the gold standard of investigative journalism. You actually spoke to the people at Reuters. They actually responded, and they basically shrugged and said, yeah, we're involved in it like it was business as usual. Yeah, I I interviewed Thomson Reuters, which is the parent company, and then a British publication called The Canary, which is a really worthwhile 
alternative publication in the UK um, for everyone to read. They confirmed with the BBC that the documents were authentic and they both kind of brushed it off and dismissed it and said, you know, my characterizations were, were wrong. But everyone can see for themselves. I've embedded the documents in the article at thegrayzone.com. You can go judge for yourself. Mm-hmm. But the key thing here is that these documents, and especially the contracts between Reuters and the British Foreign Office, they're marked private and confidential. There's even one point in a bid that Reuters put into the British Foreign Office where they disclose, where they talk about bringing a delegation of Russian journalists to the UK for training and workshops during the Sergei Skripal poisoning intrigue when a former uh, Russian trader, a former Russian spy who became a traitor for the British state who was living in England was mysteriously poisoned. And Reuters said that we work to keep this workshop secret uh, to avoid embarrassment to the UK and we coordinated closely with the British embassy in Moscow. Uh, in addition, I mean, Reuters has said they don't take government money and they have their trust principles on their website where they pledge editorial independence and integrity, and none of this displays integrity. Right. It's the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. So there's secrecy all around these programs, and the program itself that the Foreign Office is hosting is itself a, an open secret in the UK when a former member, a member of parliament who's no longer there, uh, Chris Williamson from Labour, tempted to get details and wanted to know what the British taxpayer is funding. He was stonewalled in parliament and told that for national security reasons he can't be provided details about any of this. So they're not leveling with the public, these news organizations. And they're trying to dismiss this. And, the you know, luckily for them, none of their colleagues in any other organization are going to report on this explosive story because they're probably involved in similar activities. On that note, let me remind listeners, you're listening to Max Blumenthal, best-selling author of The Management of Savagery and editor of TheGrayZone.com. I'm Esther Averam, and this is On the Ground. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Everum. So a new article by Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, cites newly leaked documents revealing how the vaunted BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and the news service Reuters participated in a massive UK government anti-Russia propaganda operation. So Max, one of the things that you talk about is how these news organizations were also involved in trying to influence like Russia's neighbors, like Ukraine. And uh, given the gray zones, you know, I think very extensive coverage of Ukraine in terms of the U.S. involvement in the Maidan coup, the neo-Nazi battalion, the Azov battalion. So based on your reporting, what kind of impact do you think this program with journalists had in a place like Ukraine? And I guess more recently in Belarus. We have to assume that this, these programs were, had an enormous impact because prior to the outbreak of civil conflict in Ukraine, there wasn't this kind of opposition media that functioned as an information weapon. We mm-hmm. saw on the eve, practically on the eve of the Maidan coup or, or uh, before the coup succeeded, in an outlet called Romadsky suddenly sprang up out of nowhere. This outlet was created with funding from USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and billionaire Pierre Omidyar, who is very close to U.S. intelligence and national security circles, it seems, because he's always putting his money in these kinds of media information war programs. He also owns The Intercept, right? Yeah, he also owns The Intercept. And, you know, if you want to get conspiratorial, it you know, The Intercept was created to, I mean, there's a theory that increasingly seems true that The Intercept was created to privatize the Snowden documents because basically they, Piero Midiar gained ownership of all the NSA documents and then bury them, right? <laughs> we, nothing else has come out since then. where they are now, and the Intercept has stopped reporting on them, so they basically eliminated them. When they right. belong to us, I mean, that's what Julian Assange and WikiLeaks understood, is these are public documents that belong to the public, so they put them all online for everyone to see. Right. So back to these, um, these leaks, or these leaked documents, which I thought were extremely in the public interest, which is why I reported on them. I mean, you see Romadsky referred to as a key outlet that needs support from the British Foreign Office, from the British state. Others like Medusa, which is a popular Russian opposition outlet that publishes in English. The British Foreign Office is providing them with support, logistics, uh, help on gaming Google searches through one of these intelligence contractors. And then you have... The BBC doing something which I think is unforgivable in journalism, which is actually they proposed through their charitable nonprofit arm BBC Media Action to go into a conflict area, the Donbass region, which where they're covering a civil war that has been grinding on since 2014, since the coup in Ukraine, and where thousands have died. And the battle lines are drawn between a Russian-speaking population with pro-Russian separatists 
and pro-NATO forces backed up by the U.S., Canadian, and British militaries, including those neo-Nazi forces you mentioned, the Azov Battalion. And the BBC proposed to go in and fund and train and provide logistical support to outlets on the pro-NATO side. So the BBC is basically saying, while we're covering this conflict, we are going to also get involved in information warfare on behalf of other outlets and Hmm. do so covertly for the British state. That should have caused a national scandal in the UK. It should cause one in Ukraine. But once again, no one dares touch these outside the alternative media. Well, so when I look at the BBC's coverage of China, I'm always, what is the word? I just can't believe that that amount it's so of obviously propagandistic it's such obvious it, it's whole it's so horrible and when the hong kong uprising was happening or the demonstrations there starting from that to to now i guess they've just been booted out of china after the last series of interviews claiming mass rapes of uyghur women my point is that i'm wondering if the same kind of program exists for china i would bet my left arm i'm mm-hmm. sure of it yeah, And I can support it with circumstantial evidence. I mean, this arms industry and British foreign office funded think tank in Australia, which is always used to antagonize China, it basically exists to start a war between Australia and China. It's called the Australian Strategic and Policy Institute, ASPI. They published a report claiming that China has uh, funded an elaborate media operation to attack the BBC and discredit it for its story on systematic mass rape. And I can get into that story, too. It's just such an absurd and typical kind of propaganda set piece. But the funny thing about this study, which The Guardian reported on, was that at the center of the study was my article that we've been discussing the whole time. Hmm. And what they... What they did was they implied that my article, which doesn't mention China at all, has nothing to do with China, was actually uh, created or financed somehow by the Chinese state to discredit the BBC. Hmm. Uh, Their studies, it's a completely made up study, but it, it seems obvious to me that the BBC was hurt by my article, that the foreign office is threatened by it and that they commissioned this study from a think tank that they are funding in order to uh, clean up the mess that we've caused for them. But this had nothing to do with China. So it really does suggest that the BBC is really focused on China right now, maybe even more than Russia. Of course, the UK, Britain is the former... Uh, colonizer I say, uh, colonizer I was going to say occupier but colonizer of Hong Kong right. and they were putting massive resources into the riots that the separatist riots that took place there and back to that BBC story you mentioned um, it, it's it's really fascinating to go in the, into the details and we did that at the gray zone I mean that story is based around a, partly around a study by a far-right Christian fanatic who works at the Victims of Communism Foundation here in Washington named Adrian Zentz. We've just ripped his work to shreds. He poses as an academic when he only has credentials to teach theology. He's an 
end times fanatic, his studies get published at this the CIA pass through called the Jamestown Foundation. That's not an academic journal or institution. They're just pure propaganda from top to bottom. And then the person who was they relied on for their testimony was a Uyghur exile named Tursanai Ziawadun, who had been living in Kazakhstan and was interviewed by BuzzFeed in 2019 about her supposed experience in a Chinese vocational training center, which the U.S. calls concentration camps. And she said that she was not harmed, she wasn't physically abused, it was just very mentally uh, traumatic for her to be taken away from her home. Hmm. That's what she said then. Then she was brought to the United States by the Uyghur Human Rights Project, which is another group funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, funded by the U.S. government, and cultivated. And then she delivered this testimony about being raped and basically changed her entire story that she had put on the record in another outlet. So what's going on there? It looks like a pretty clear operation that the BBC is running in concert with British and U.S. intelligence to demonize China and to turn up the heat in this new Cold War. It's very obvious to me that this kind of program is taking place, and we haven't even gotten to Twitter yet, which revealed itself truly as an arm of U.S.-U.K. information warfare when it slapped a warning label on my story. Oh, that was the last thing I was going to ask you about. So they they said that well, you tell me, so like warning this information in this article may have been hacked or something? Yeah, it said, if you just take the link to my article, The Gray Zone, and put it up on Twitter, a warning label will appear that says, these materials may have been obtained through hacking. And it reminded me of the rap warning labels from the 90s, <laughs> which kind of told you which albums you wanted to buy. It was like, <laughs> oh, well, it just has like... But, dirty, bad, (laughs) strong lyrics. I don't know. I forgot what they would say. But it was kind of like an endorsement. Right. Well, I have to get this record. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think the the Ghetto Boys would have been famous if it wasn't for that. The labeling and the whole campaign to drive them under the... below the surface. And what resulted from the labeling of my article is that we got like 400,000 views on it in 24 hours. It nearly shut down our site. It was trending for days. And a lot of millennials and I guess Zoomers, they saw comedic value in the label. And they realized that if they just took the link and then applied any photo they could think of, like (laughs) SpongeBob smoking weed or something, that that photo would appear with the warning label below it. And so it was just like endless hilarity on Twitter. The article was being tweeted like five times a minute and it totally backfired on Twitter and wound up really doing serious damage to Bellingcat's brand. Wow. And people would dig into the article and say, well, what is this that I'm being told not to read? Whoa, so you mean this outlet that I'm being told is the gold standard in investigative journalism is basically an intelligence cutout that's just, and it's just fake like everything else. And wait, Max Blumenthal's reporting was completely true, so they told me not to read it? I thought I live in a liberal democracy. What's going on here? And many of the 
young people that were sharing the article and memeing it were just ideologically unmoored. They're not activists or people who are you know committed socialists or anything like that. But it helps them understand the information war that is presented to them as objective journalism. And of course, if they get to learn about the fate of Julian Assange, who was basically thrown in a hole, basically thrown in a dungeon for publishing documents in the public interest that were classified material, then they'll really understand, they'll really start to question the foundations of this uh, kind of pseudo-democratic political structure that they're supposed to believe in. All right. Well, when you said information war, that, that I think is the right note to conclude our conversation on because that's what we're engaged in right now. A lot of people don't realize it. And no matter how humble we may think our outlets are, they are playing a vital role, uh, an important role in getting information out that the corporate media is ignoring intentionally and just doesn't want people to to know, I mean, we we even we didn't have a chance to even talk about like Hunter Biden and and all of that, but it kind of goes into the same line of just stories that are huge stories that the public is just not allowed to know about. So right. um, I want right. to encourage, yeah, go go ahead. And that's that's you know from our point of view as uh, journalists who are acting in the public interest, we're not trying to conceal anything. We are trying to expose. So the information war has been brought upon us. It's been imposed on us by people who are seeking to conceal, distort, deflect, and deny. And so all we have to do is continue to tell the truth. And I think that is the part that we play in this unfortunate information war. Yeah. Well, that is Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone. And he's also a filmmaker, we discussed his film Killing Gaza on the show, but he's also the author of many books, including the bestseller The Management of Savagery about Syria. So I would highly recommend that and also just recommend people going to thegrayzone.com to read the article that we've been discussing Reuters, BBC, and Bellingcat participated in covert UK foreign office funded programs to weaken Russia leak docs reveal and so thank you for joining me uh on the show max thanks for giving me the opportunity i appreciate it and that will do it for today's episode of on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital thanks to Chantel james lydia curtis and thomas o'rourke for their contributions to the show you can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On The Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averam, that's On The Ground, W. Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. The new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included Dreamland by Bunny Whaler, What Rough Beast by Burnt Sugar, and Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington. 
Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.